<clears throat> we've come to the end of a day. Congratulations. And I want to talk tonight about uh, many things. To start with this word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist texts, um, the word is bhavana, and it's usually translated as meditation. More literal translation of it is um, the word cultivation. So there was the Buddha in a, a very agrarian society talking about cultivating the ground, just cultivating the ground so that many beautiful uh, fruits can emerge. And I think it's a little bit different from how we might normally approach the idea of meditation, which is uh, perhaps more in the line of our ordinary thinking, which is more about acquisition. You know, I need to forgive myself fully by Wednesday, because that will give me Thursday to work on this other thing. <laughs> so then when I go home on Friday, I could say, yeah, I did it all, you know, <laughs> I covered it all. Or, or, you know, I've got to have this experience, this tremendous experience that I can describe to everybody. Because, you know, what would it be like if um, they said, what happened? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> you know, or something like that, you know. So uh, as in all things, we can move into meditation from a base of a real desire to have a specific ennobling experience so that we can bolster our sense of self-worth. And, and that's a problem because the evolution of meditation can often be very subtle. Um, we're really cultivating the ground and there isn't necessarily a specific timetable for that fruit to emerge. I can tell you with great conviction, it will emerge. And sometimes um, these qualities emerge more actually in our day-to-day -day life than perhaps with a, a clear bolt of understanding in the formal practice. So for example, in uh, some of what we've been doing today, you know, if you went home and somebody said, what'd you do? And you said, I felt a few breaths, my mind wandered and I brought it back. It would be like, wow, you know? <laughs> big deal, but that can be a big deal. Because what do we normally do when we realize we've strayed from our chosen course, or we've digressed, or we've wandered, or we've made a mistake? You know, usually we go into a litany of failure and self-judgment. I'm so horrible. I can't believe I'm thinking. No one else in the room is thinking. They're all sitting here. They're sitting here in complete bliss, bathed in white light. I'm the only one who's thinking. Maybe they are thinking, but if they are thinking, undoubtedly they're thinking loving thoughts. They're thinking <laughs> spiritual thoughts. They're thinking beautiful thoughts. I am the one who's sitting here thinking about, you know, what's traffic going to be like on Sunday? What do I care what traffic's going to be like on Sunday? I'm not even driving on Sunday, but I'm the one, you know, I've got to figure it out for the entire eastern seaboard. And, you know, and so usually what we do, not only have we often greatly added to the length of that original distraction, 
but it's so demoralizing. It's so exhausting. So that moment, we say, that moment when we realize we have been distracted is a moment when we have a chance to be really different. And this is what I was saying last night about how even if the concept of compassion is never voiced, it's intrinsic to the process. Because in that moment when we realize we need to begin again, we have an opportunity to let go of that kind of rancor and a sense of punishment, a sense of blame, to just gently let go and begin again. This is a very big deal. Because this is not just something we do as a kind of exercise. This is a transformation of our habitual way of being. So then when we are in life and we've made a mistake or we've strayed from our chosen course and we need to begin again, it's like we have built up a kind of capacity to do that in a different way. And this is very significant. Or in the loving kindness practice, in the formal loving kindness or compassion practice, I often think these days about um, this time, uh, not too long ago, a friend of mine in New York City took me out to lunch. And it was like one of those confessional lunches. And uh, he said to me, I just have to confess <laughs> that, um, as he put it, he said, I've been doing loving kindness practice now for about three years. Whether I'm on retreat or I'm sitting at home each day. And he said, you know, there hasn't been a dramatic shift in my experience from when I was first sitting to now. He said, but I'm like a different person. He said, I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family. I'm different with my community. I'm different ethically. And then he looked at me and he said, is that enough? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I kind of think it's enough, you know. But it demands a kind of patience and a willingness to do a practice without continually stepping out of it to evaluate it. How am I doing? Is it better than yesterday? Is it better than they're doing? You know, um, and just to really put oneself in it as a kind of experiment uh, to see if the changes come. So we're cultivating the ground. And another meaning of the word bhavana, which I find very interesting, um, comes from one of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions where they also say cultivation, but they have a phrase that they sometimes attach um, to the meaning of the word. And that phrase is getting used to it, getting used to it. And the, the background of that theory is a belief that by and large, we have pretty much all had profound moments of connection, of awareness, of insight, of clarity, of compassion, of love, but we may not be awfully used to them. And so we have even a very deep kind of breakthrough moment. And we think, what was that? I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. That was freaky. Or I must have fabricated that. That's unreal. That couldn't possibly be real. I must have manufactured that. Or a kind of aimless craving, like, I don't know how to get back to that. I have to get back to that, but how, how, how? 
You know, so one of the things we are doing in the cultivation of meditation practice is getting used to abiding in or dwelling in our clearest understanding, our most um, progressed or evolved sense of what life is about. The places we have already been, most likely, but don't necessarily trust or know how to reside in. So that's part of the, the nature of the practice. And as I started, you know, by talking about the Barrytown motto, I often uh, talk in juxtaposition with that, the Barrytown motto, remember being tranquil and alert. I often talk about, um, you know, the, the part of the building just behind me, the main part of the building, before the different wings were attached, uh, it was built as a private home as a mansion by someone who at one point was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and his name was Colonel Gaston. And uh, there's a, a book, a pamphlet more than a book really, in the Barry Town Library which is the history of the town of Barry and it has the story of Colonel Gaston in it. And um, it says in the, in the pamphlet that Colonel Gaston himself had a motto that he tried to live by, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so I looked at that, you know, and my first thought was, I wonder how well he got along with his neighbors, which perhaps were going around, you know, trying to be tranquil and alert. <laughs> and, and the reason I usually tell those stories in juxtaposition is that I do believe that we often do have a kind of motto that we might live by. It might be quite unconscious, but you know, some sense of who we are, what we're capable of, what our life is about, where happiness is to be found, um, where strength is to be found. And we kind of mold or contour a lot of our actions, a lot of our choices around that motto. So one of the things we do uh, in the course of the practice often is, is discover or uncover that sensibility, that motto, and we also stretch it some. We expand it some because very often it is quite limited and conditioned based on so many limiting assumptions that if we could only see clearly, we could see, oh yeah, you know, why am I holding to that as the sum total of, of what I'm capable of? And so we keep evolving and expanding that as well. One of the ways that we do that, not only through the practice of mindfulness, which we've been emphasizing, but is through the practice of loving kindness. Um, as a meditation, that's almost precisely what it is, is to use various methods and tools to understand how our attention, most particularly our attention, has been contoured by these kinds of beliefs or assumptions. And we play with that. We stretch that. We look at ourselves at, from a different angle. We look at others from a different angle we very consciously expand 
our perspective. So there is a, a quality of effort in this because we're moving out of a rut. You know, we're moving out of maybe what's most familiar or most uh, convenient, most conventional for us. But it can be almost a kind of playful effort because we're really saying, hey, what happens? You know, what happens when I do this instead of that? So, for example, this is my favorite example these days of this. You know, let's say you're in the habit in the evening of kind of looking back at yourself during the day as though to assess, well, how'd I do today? And let's just say you're in the habit of pretty much focusing on, perhaps even fixating on what you did wrong. You know, the thing you didn't say quite right or the, the moment when you got really timid and you didn't say anything at all or whatever it was. So much so that your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses around that really stupid thing you said at lunch, at that meeting. So the, the play or the perspective of loving kindness is almost one of asking yourself, anything else happened today? Like anything good? You know, and it's not the world of make-believe and it's not trying to cover over the reality of what actually happened. It's not as though you are insisting, oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch? Maybe it was really stupid, you know, and there are consequences to that. But that's not all that we are ever. So it's that collapse, that fixedness, that narrowness of perspective where we just feel lost, overcome, that kind of rigid holding to one way of seeing ourselves. We're loosening that up. We're opening beyond that. We're checking out other angles. You know, so that's the nature of the loving kindness practice. Sometimes people don't like it, um, not necessarily after doing it, but as they think about it. And some of that is a, a kind of queasiness that it will be make-believe, you know, that it will be phony, that it will be false, that, uh, as one person said to me once, he said, um, and this also I think was prospective in, in terms of thinking about it, he said, that he absolutely detested loving-kindness practice because it reminded him of a continually enforced Valentine's Day. You know, like on the count of three, you will be filled with love, like something very coercive and phony. And, uh, you know, or the story I originally told way back when about reading an interview in Time or Newsweek um, from a, a former uh, beauty queen, Ms. Kentucky, whose reign had been like 30 or 40 years before. And all these years later, one of those journals asked her what she had to say about life. And she said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. You know, and you think of just like 30 or 40 years of just smiling for the camera, completely vacuous, completely disconnected to an internal reality, maybe hiding some very conflicted or painful feelings. That's the notion people get you know, that we're trying to turn ourselves into Ms. Kentucky. Um, you know, so of course it's a fearful prospect. You know. <laughs> but that's not at all what loving kindness practice is about. 
So the word in Pali is metta, M-E-T-T-A. It's, of course, the word you see up above the doorway here, the main entrance. Uh, when we first moved in, when we first bought the building, it was, as I said, it was a Catholic novitiate. Um, that's why it has all those uh, recreational elements, like the bowling alley downstairs and stuff. Um, and when the Dalai Lama came here in 1979, he did go bowling down there. I keep thinking we should put up a plaque, you know, Dalai Lama bowled here. Um, but anyway, so it was a novitiate and it was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So that's what it set up above the doorway, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So we moved in on Valentine's Day and a couple of days later asked someone to get up on a very tall ladder and asked him if he could rearrange the words to see if the letters, you know, to see if he could come up with a word that meant something about us. And so he got up on the ladder and he played with the letters and he came up with metta, M-E-T-T-A, which means loving kindness. That's the common translation. So then, just like with the Buddhas, you know, we had a, a very intense series of discussions. Should we leave it up there? It's not an English word. Nobody knows what it means. We're not in Asia anymore. Why are we doing that? Um, but the point of view that wanted it up there prevailed, and I was very happy because that was my point of view. And I actually don't always prevail here. And the reason that I like it is that, you know, someone will call for directions and like a delivery person and whoever answers the phone can say, well, it's a large brick building with white pillars and it has this word up above, metta. And usually they ask, what does that mean? And we say, that means loving kindness. So that means love. So I like that. So the translations I find all somewhat problematic. The word loving kindness, I'm sure is quite accurate. I find it awkward because it's not a word generally speaking, in common usage. And so my concern is that it makes the quality itself seem somewhat arcane and removed from day-to-day -day life and uh, precious in the negative sense of the word. Sometimes it's translated as love, which is, of course, very complex because we use the word love in so many different ways. Sometimes um, we use the word love really frankly as a medium of exchange. You know, I will love you as long as you love me in return, as long as you say so in precisely this way, as long as the following 15 conditions are met. You know, and I once used that example somewhere and someone in the room called out only 15, <laughs> you know, so as long as the however many conditions are met. And we know that state. You know, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. Um, we know that state. It's not, you know, a question of condemning that state, but because we know it, we also know the fragility, the brittleness of that state. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. You know, so how long will that last? Where's the sustaining power? Um, where's the stability? Where's the ability to be present throughout change, throughout ups and downs? So clearly that's not what is meant by metta. Uh, the literal translation is friendship. 
So you could say that the practice of metta is developing the art of friendship, both toward ourselves, toward others, toward all of life. Now, friendship doesn't mean uh, being stupid, you know, or being foolish, which is another association people often have with the sense of, of loving kindness that uh, it's a little bit facile, you know, and, and uh, not discerning enough, you know, that you are going to be sort of like Miss Kentucky and you're just going to smile and you can let people hurt you and you're just going to smile and you let other people be oppressed or treated unjustly and you're just going to smile. And, um, and often I actually contemplate this, you know, I reflect on with a kind of sadness that in many ways our notion of love in our time in this society has degenerated so much that we often think of it as something kind of stupid, you know, something that can't be forceful and um, powerful. In fact, one of the one of the books that I wrote was called *The Force of Kindness*, which was a a title suggested by the publisher, and I really liked it a lot immediately because I thought so often our conditioning is to think of something like kindness as a, a kind of secondary virtue you know if you can't be brilliant and you can't be courageous and you can't be wonderful well you might as well be kind you know it's like it's all right you know it's good but not great you know and, you know but really when we look with clarity at that quality it's an enormous force for self-transformation for transformation in the world. So all of these are things that we actually confront in the practice of loving kindness. One of the reasons that it's not as simple as it might seem or as silly as it might seem um, to do loving kindness practice is because part of it is a very direct confrontation with a lot of assumptions. You know, all of these assumptions, all of the assumptions we make about ourselves, about where happiness lies, about how we need to relate to others to be strong, um, where integrity comes from, all kinds of things. And this is very good. You know, it's part of why the practice is not so easy to do, but it's part of what makes it quite profound. You know, as we move our attention in these different ways, as we play with our attention, as we expand the ways we see ourselves and we see others, we do see many, many of these assumptions and we're challenged by that, but that's okay. That's why the practice isn't, you know, something just kind of rote or, or mechanical. It really is, is very deep. So friendship or loving kindness, the essence of that word is actually an acknowledgement of connection. It's not even a, a sentiment or an emotion as we might normally use that word, but it's like a very deep knowing about connection. And the power of that comes from the fact that that's true, that it's real. We're not trying to superimpose a, a sweet vision on a you know terrible world of disconnection and alienation and aloneness and try to pretend that it's true it's really seeing deeply into something that actually is true that 
our lives are intertwined, that we live in an interdependent universe, that we need to care for one another because it matters, that what happens over there doesn't stay over there anymore. I mean, it never did, but we used to have that concept, you know, that we could nicely package sort of the economic or environmental devastation over there, you know, and we could build a strong enough barrier so it would never affect us here. But we don't live in a time when we fall into that kind of delusion anymore. It's just not so. And that's one of the, the things I appreciate the most about our time is that it doesn't take a kind of frankly spiritual or religious understanding to come to that very deep knowing of how connected we all are. You know, environmental consciousness will bring us there, economic awareness will bring us there, even epidemiology brings us there. That what happens over there doesn't stay over there. So how are we going to live? You know, what are we going to do? You know, if every one of us right now just reflected for a few moments on the things that brought us here tonight. You know, what led us to be sitting in this room here together? How many conversations with people? Or how many times did somebody give us a book? Or read us a poem? Or tell us about their meditation experience? Tell us about this place? You know, nobody was kind of like driving down Pleasant Street and thought, I'm going to go in there, <laughs> you know? Each one of us is sitting here now because of a confluence of conditions, relationships, interactions, events, encounters. It's a whole wave that has brought us to this moment in time. You know, and I do that reflection sometimes, and I think back to being in college, being at the university, because I went to India uh, the first time in 1970 as part of an independent study program at the university I was going to. So I went, you know, with my student loans and my uh, regent scholarship and things like that. So sometimes when I do this reflection, I think way back to the Board of Regents, the State University of New York. You know, how many elements have brought me here to this moment in time? And when I do this reflection, sometimes I think about the people whose actions have really hurt me. Not just the ones I find kind of annoying in a minor way, but the times when I've really felt like I've come to an edge so that I said to myself, I have got to be free of this. I've got to be able to see things in a different way because this is too hard. I've got to find another meaning of happiness, something like that, because they're part of my sitting here tonight too. And how many beings have been involved in the clothing that we're wearing right now? And the food that we've eaten today you know, even though it may not have been, you know, distinctly an animal product, you know, who planted those seeds? And what about the creatures that live in the earth and the soil 
and who harvested that crop and who transported it and then sold it to us and then it was prepared for us. You know, the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has this exercise where he kind of holds up like a string bean. And in that process, you see the whole world as you really look at that string bean. That's loving kindness. It doesn't mean we like everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of everybody. But our construct of self and other and us and them, which we can hold so rigidly with a great big other out there, is what gets challenged. So that our vision of life actually shifts. Because that that sensibility or that vision shifts, our field of motivation shifts. And this is, um, in the Buddhist psychology, you could almost say almost distinctly that the, the arena of the mind that is transmuted through the practice of loving kindness is the field of motivation. It's where we're coming from and what we do. It's where our intentions are. And this in the, you know, in Eastern thought, certainly in Buddhist thought, is considered a very crucial part of any action. You know, if I was to reach out and hand one of you, I don't have much up here, let's say that's schedule. You know, all anybody sees is my hand moving down, picking up a piece of paper and moving it forward. But why did I do that? You know, maybe I offered it to you because I like you and I want you to have it. Maybe I offered it to you because you look totally confused. And I think this person doesn't have a clue of where they're supposed to be. Let me give them a schedule. Maybe I'm offering it to you because I don't like you. And I think, well, hey, they're going to feel chastised, you know, by getting this schedule. Or maybe I see you have a bigger schedule you know, printed on a nice colored piece of paper and I just have this little white piece of paper and I think, oh, well, maybe I'll give you this and you'll give me that, you know, or a million other possibilities. So in one way, the power of the action, the energy of the action is not in my hand. Moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward, it's in the heart space or the, the motivation that sparked that action. And that motivation is what distinguishes one act from what seems on the surface to be completely identical. So where are we coming from in what we do or what we say? And this is the field of transformation. It's the largest field of transformation in loving kindness practice. So that if in general we have been coming from a place of fear in what we do or what we say, and we do a practice like that, that is said to transform. So we find we are coming from an acknowledgement of connection in what we do or what we say. And I'll go on for a moment and talk about other aspects of an action. So um, the action begins with the motivation, and this is very crucial. We use mindfulness to see where we're coming from and to have a kind of discerning intelligence. We use a practice like loving kindness meditation to modulate that 
field of motivation. And then the next step of an action is really the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of the action. So I might stop and think, well, you know, I have this really good motive for wanting to give you the schedule, this piece of paper, but I've only got one. You know, and there are a lot of people in this room, and maybe this is the kind of thing best done privately or whatever it might be. You know, we use mindfulness in a much more global way to try to see the context of where we are, to be sensitive, to be aware of what might be the most skillful way to actually execute the action. And I just want to call attention to this because so often we conflate those two things. And this is another place where people get kind of fearful. They think, well, were I to be coming from a loving place or a compassionate place, there's only this very narrow band of action that's available. You know, you can only smile, you can only say yes, you can only have people move into your little apartment, you know, you can only do this, you can't protest, you can't be fierce, can't be intense, whatever it might be. But we needn't conflate those two aspects. The motivation can be very loving. And perhaps in some situation, in some particular context, our best guess of the most skillful way to act is really fierce. It's really tough. It's really strong. It's saying no. That doesn't mean our motivation was somehow lesser or uh, degraded in any way. They're actually two distinguishable elements of an action. And this is also very important because the, the cultivation or the deepening of loving kindness, I don't think makes our life smaller, you know, so that we could only be sweet um, or nice or say yes or give away everything we have. I think it actually makes our world bigger because we can trust our motivation and where we're coming from and really pay attention and keep learning about skillfulness in, in action and communication and speech and so on. Okay, so loving kindness or metta um, is classically taught as part of a bundle of uh, qualities. And, and we're going to talk about and have a little bit of practice of all four of these qualities while we're here. The, um, sometimes they are practiced. They're very similar practices, although they're also a little bit different. And sometimes they are uh, practiced quite distinctly as separate practices. Very often they're combined through the, and all expressed through the practice of loving kindness. So we'll do some of, of each. Loving kindness is kind of the foundational practice. And we also bring in these other three qualities, which I'll describe just briefly because we are going to go into each of them in, in much more depth here. So the first is the sense of connection, that friendship that acknowledgement of connection, that's metta. Uh, I should also say that taken together, these four qualities are known as the four Brahma-viharas. Uh, Brahma meaning celestial or supreme. Uh, one translation I heard of the word that I liked is the word best. 
and vihara, meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, we're not there all the time. You know, we certainly leave. But when we come back, there should be a certain feeling. It should be the place we are least pretentious, most authentic, most relaxed, most at ease, most free, or home. Okay, so these four are said to form our best home. The first being loving kindness, the second being the quality of compassion. Um, if loving kindness is the acknowledgement of connection, compassion is, is sometimes defined as the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. It's an actual movement of the heart as we can, first of all, see pain as pain. If we're looking at our own restlessness, agitation, anxiety, fear, craving, greed, jealousy, all those states, you know, what would it be like, for example, to make a translation so that we're not seeing them as bad or wrong or terrible, we're not condemning ourselves as bad or wrong or terrible people for having them, but rather we're seeing them as states of suffering, which in fact they are. That would be a shift. And opens the door for a very different relationship to that, that painful sense. So that's the movement of the heart in response to seeing pain as pain. We can see our own difficult situation differently, more, more genuinely as painful. We can see the pain of others more clearly um, with, with a clearer observation, not so caught up in our immediate reaction. So compassion is that movement of the heart where we go toward the experience of suffering, but not to be broken by it and not to be shattered by it, which is a lot of what you know we'll talk about in the coming days. Because if we were to simply be overcome by suffering without any resilience, without anything kind of lifting us up, then we of course get exhausted and we're not, we don't have the energy to really either sustain our presence in a difficult situation or really try to make a difference. And so uh, compassion is not a simple thing. You know, it's not kind of a glib um, response to, to difficulty or to pain. It has many elements of, that demand very careful seeing and a, a real sense of balance which we might not ordinarily have. You know, the balance between compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. The balance between compassion for someone and the understanding that, you know, sadly I'm not in control of this universe. I can't make somebody's situation all better through some kind of insistence. You know, many, many, many layers of that exploration, that's compassion. And then the third of the Brahma Viharas is the state, it's the quality of sympathetic joy, um, which we'll also talk about much more later. Sympathetic joy 
is defined as the ability to have happiness and the happiness of others. Instead of looking at someone else's success or good fortune and falling sway to the voice that so often arises inside that says, ooh, I would be happier if you had a little bit less going for you right now. <laughs> you know, you don't have to lose everything, but if the light could just dim a bit, you know, I'd really appreciate that. It's a very interesting state, you know, both the jealousy and the sympathetic joy. Um, I think we can best understand sympathetic joy sometimes by remembering times when we've received it or not. You know, something really good happens for you, and some people are so happy for you, and it feels so beautiful. And other people, they may smile, but you really get the feeling, you know, that they would be just fine if you lost that grant or whatever it is. And to see, you know, how beautiful it can feel to receive it gives us some sense of the nature of that quality. And we also certainly can generate it. But here, too, there's often a, a tremendous challenge as we confront many assumptions. You know, the assumption that happiness is a limited commodity in this world. And the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. Assumptions about permanence. You know, you have everything and you will forever. And I have nothing and I will forever. And this really weird kind of assumption that we can fall into that somehow the, the success or the good fortune or the accolade was just kind of floating around in the air and it was heading right toward me. And somehow you got in the way and it made a detour and landed on you. And if it hadn't landed on you, it definitely, inevitably would have landed on me. Whereas really, maybe your success has nothing to do with me. We're not always in competition. Sometimes we are, of course. We're both applying for the same job or the same grant or something. And if you get it, I don't. But it's not always like that. But we can live as though it was always like that. And so we feel lonelier. We feel embittered. We feel jealous over situations that really are not taking anything away from us. So here I come to um, something the Dalai Lama said, which I really liked, which was, it only makes sense to cultivate happiness and the happiness of others because then you're increasing your own chances of happiness six billion to one. He said, those are very good odds. So you think about that. You don't even have to get dressed in the morning. You don't have to spend any money. You just think about someone's happiness. You're happy. There you are. You know, and it's so free not to be bound by all that sense of, you know, um, aloneness and competition and all of that. So it's a practice that we actually, we actually cultivate. Some people, of course, do have this very beautiful trait just naturally. And for many of us, it's a training. It's actually a mental training in challenging those assumptions, playing with our attention, moving our attention in different ways, see what happens. And then the last of the Brahmaviharas is the state of equanimity, which 
in uh, some schools actually comes first because it's a foundation for the other three. Um, equanimity does not mean indifference. It doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean callousness or not caring. It means balance. It's the kind of balance that comes from wisdom. It's perspective. It doesn't mean coldness, that we don't care. Uh, often I think there's even, uh, both in compassion and equanimity, um, there's almost a certain sense of poignancy that, you know what, this would be a better world if I could control it. If I could look at you and your suffering and I could say, poof, it's gone. But it's not like that. So equanimity doesn't mean giving up. It's actually the really, really, really big sense of space that allows us to hang in there without so many expectations and a timetable for your healing and you know needing things to be a certain way and attachment to the fruit of our actions and all of that. Equanimity is the balance born of wisdom. It's the voice of wisdom. All the ways we can see more clearly into the nature of things produce the sense of equanimity. That's the fruit. Another way of saying equanimity perhaps is peace. Peace doesn't mean being inert or removed from a situation. But when we really look, like what allows us to hang in there in a situation where things are hard for someone and we can't seem to make the pivotal difference according to our will or our timetable. What allows us to be there? What gives us a bigger sense of time or explodes our sense of time? Like you've got to get better by tomorrow. Or uh, sometimes, you know, after a retreat like this, I'll run into somebody who participated you know, maybe I'm in, in New York City and there I run into them there and they say, well, you know, I did that retreat up in Barry and I, I had this friend and I offered them loving kindness all week. And, you know, and then I saw them here and they were no better. And I thought, I gave you a week, you know, like, why aren't you better? You know, all the ways that, um, or another way of seeing it is that those first three Brahmaviharas of loving kindness Compassion and sympathetic joy are considered practices of generosity. Not necessarily material generosity, but like generosity of the spirit. We're present, we're open, we're paying attention, we're not ignoring someone, we're not looking right through them. So it's a kind of generosity. And it can be a freely given gift, or like any act of generosity, it can be kind of funny too. Like, I'll give you the schedule if you give me your brighter, bigger schedule. You know, I'll do this if you thank me. Or you appreciate it more than you've ever liked anything you've ever been given before. It's what one of my friends once called meta with an edge. <laughs> you know, so it's equanimity that softens that edge, that really allows meta to be boundless, that allows these qualities to be truly generous. But it doesn't mean we're stupid, you know? It doesn't come from having a kind of weird notion about life. It comes from seeing how things actually are. It's wisdom that gives us that kind of perspective. And so I, I think sometimes of this uh, 
example that's also used in Tibetan practice, where they say, uh, this is in terms of mindfulness practice, which you might have experienced today. They say, it's best to approach the thoughts and feelings that come up in your mind as though you were a quite elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I really have always liked that image because I thought, you know, you've lived a life, you've seen a lot, you've been through lots of ups and downs. And there you are, you're sitting in the playground and you see this two-year-old kid freaking out because they broke their shovel. You don't go up to them and say, you idiot, it's just a shovel. You know, there's so much warmth and tenderness and care and presence. But you also don't fling yourself to the ground and start howling, oh my God, the shovel's broken. It's like, you know it's just a shovel. At the same time, you really care. So there's this huge sense of connection and tenderness and um, compassion for the kid in the midst of a really big space, born of wisdom, not of callousness or not caring, but you've lived a life. You know, oh yeah, it's just a shovel. You don't say, wait till you're 45, you know, and you start to get arthritis or something. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> but when I think of what we want as individuals, when we seek help, when I think of what I want as an individual when I seek help, I really want both of those. You know, if I went to see a meditation teacher or a therapist or somebody and told them, you know, my very difficult situation and they started howling, with tears, not laughter. <laughs> laughter would be really bad, but <laughs> you know, but if they just started weeping, I think, uh-oh, no way out. I'd get really frightened. You know, I don't want them to be cold and dismissive. I want that loving care. And I also want to see some sense of something bigger than my immediate situation, because that's what inspires me to go forward, right? So we tend to want both those things. We want the openness of the equanimity, the spaciousness of the equanimity, that big perspective, and we want the really loving presence. So that's how equanimity works. It doesn't diminish the force of loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy. It actually makes it much, much, much bigger and more sustainable. And this we'll also talk about um, as we, as we go through these days. So these are the four Brahma Viharas. And we're gonna to start tomorrow morning um, with the metta practice, which as I said, is often used as the kind of foundational practice. Uh, so even as we focus on that, we're bringing in elements of, of the other three as well, and certainly of equanimity, or it wouldn't actually be metta practice, it would be it would be something else. And we do metta practice. Um, as many of you know, the formal practice is done through not gathering our attention around the feeling of the breath, but gathering our attention around the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are the conduits for our attention. That's how we are paying attention in this practice. And it's also how we're developing a flexibility of attention to move out of certain 
habitual ways of seeing is through the phrases. So um, the means of the method of the experimentation is through these phrases. They're not meant to be just recited by rote, um, but they really help convey our attention. And so uh, being words, it's often a little bit awkward um, and takes some time to get used to. They're, they're kind of imperfect, but nonetheless, um, they can really be a valuable tool in, in moving our awareness in these ways. I find it a practice where um, I'm very supported by structure. And here too, there's a lot of balance in this kind of practice. Generally speaking, the simpler things are, the more we will be able to concentrate. And the engine that moves this practice is concentration. It's not kind of making up a feeling you're not really feeling. It's not um, insisting that you feel something you're not. It's the gathering. It's the wholeheartedness of our being behind one phrase at a time. That's really what juices it. And so generally speaking, the simpler things are, the easier it will be able to concentrate. That's why, for example, we choose three or four phrases and not 15. Somebody once came to me and said, I can't remember my phrases. And I said, well, how many phrases do you have? And they said, oh, 15. I said, well, no one can remember 15 phrases, you know? That's why we choose a, a certain pretty small number of phrases. It's why we tend to encourage people to use the same phrases not to feel imprisoned by them. You know, maybe somebody comes to mind and quite spontaneously a very different set of phrases comes up, and that's fine, you know. But you don't want to just sit here and go through endless, endless digressions about which phrase to use for which person, you know, which is easy to do. You know, you might use a very simple phrase, which we also encourage, like, may I be happy? And that's fine. And then you think of a friend and you think, oh, may you be happy. And that works. And then you think of another friend and you start, you know, may you be happy. And then you think, well, maybe not you. <laughs> you know, you get really lazy when you're happy. May you be what, 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 you know, content. No, that would be, you'd really be asleep if you were content, you know, like, what, you know, and then we're just gone. You know, so if it's possible, we encourage you to use pretty much the same phrases. And they will be imperfect, you know, um, but that's okay because they also change meaning over time. You know, so, well, we don't want you to feel imprisoned by them, to be supported by that structure, which will really help your concentration. But the other side of it is energy. You know, it's like tranquil and alert. You know, it needs to be alive. Um, you know, so you're not just repeating these words. It needs to have a, a sense of richness uh, and texture. You know, so we work with that as well. Maybe it's uh, paying more attention to the actual being that is the recipient of the loving kindness. Or, you know, there are many ways of doing that, which we'll also explore as we um, 
as we undertake that practice. So we use phrases, we rely on structure, we also keep it alive. Um, and above all, I think there's this kind of lightness of spirit that is really important in doing that practice so that you really do see it as an exploration and an experiment and not as something that um, is kind of you know, dire, like I've got to love myself by Sunday or Friday even, you know. But, but to really see it almost as a kind of planting seeds. You know, each time you say one of those phrases, it's like planting a seed and you just have to let it go and, and even have fun, you know, as you're doing it. One goes through, like with all practices, many changes and many ups and downs and everything is, is a part of the the ongoing flow of, of that understanding and, and the deepening of these four qualities. So uh, beginning tomorrow at that 8.30 sitting, we'll uh, begin to explore both in sitting and in walking, uh, doing that specific practice. Okay, so why don't we sit together for just a few minutes. <clears throat> 